0: To read Acts, beginning at Acts 28, beginning at verse 16 through the close of this chapter. Listen to God's Word. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brethren coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers, and from morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, You will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen." He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is God's holy word. The book of Acts certainly ends rather abruptly with the Apostle Paul under house arrest chained to Roman guards. Apparently, we know that the practice of such guards was usually six hours of duty on per day, and then there would naturally be four guards who would be assigned strictly to keep this particular prisoner ready and available for a trial when Nero Caesar decided to call him. Interestingly, we know that Nero pretty much put off these procedures. He didn't like being involved in judicial trials. But there were those guards And who was really the captive audience, you know? They were keeping Paul, but on the other hand, they were captives all day long, or at least during their shift, to hear the teaching about Christ that Paul was constantly giving. When I thought about those guards, it reminded me of something from my seminary time many years ago because Michael Ford, the son of Gerald Ford, was a fellow student with me at seminary. He's a little younger than me, and we weren't in classes together, but I knew who he was, and he was on campus, and I was there in my last year, 73, 74, when Gerald Ford became vice president, and suddenly Mike Ford acquired two secret service men who went to every class with him, and as you know, he, he was also there when his father became president. I had already gone by the time that happened, but here were these men, and I would see them with their little earpieces, you know, you always, and they wore suits. We seminary students didn't wear suits, I can assure you, and uh, they were very obvious who they were. But it was interesting because some of the fellows who were in classes with Mike Ford were, were telling how you would know, expect these very uh, efficient guards, secret service men, to probably stand at the door, you know, at rigid attention or something to, to guard the vice president's son. But instead, what happened was that they said the guards, the secret Service men, several of them, got quite interested in the classes on biblical studies and, and church history and theology, and they were sitting there avidly taking notes, enjoying what they were hearing. And I trust still doing their job while well, they did that, but great, they were exposed to the faith. Well, it took six months for Paul to cross the Mediterranean Sea That's amazing. When you think you could get on a plane in Tel Aviv and be in Rome, I would—I don't know, I guess probably two hours, maybe two and a half hours to make that kind of a flight. It took Paul six months because of a shipwreck and all the other things that happened. The early part of this chapter tells of him landing on the island of Malta and some healings and things judged to be miraculous took place there. He was well-received and sent on his way. And then when he came to the Italian mainland believers, greeted him and conducted him to Rome. Finally, he was there in the capital city of the known world, the center of power, the Washington, D.C. of his day. And there, we're told, he spent two years. Now, we could go into a long discourse about what exactly happened between that arrival and his death. Luke says he was there two years, so I'm sure he was there two years. But the chronology is, is a little bit fuzzy and there's also a belief that Paul may have had some period of freedom in there and some think he even traveled west and got to Spain as he said was his goal. But if he did that, we do know he came back to Rome because in 64 A.D. he was beheaded there by the order of Nero Caesar who also dispatched Peter in that same purge of Christianity. We've been studying Acts for months now, and I don't know about you, but from a human standpoint, and I'm certainly not saying this to criticize the Word of God, but humanly speaking, as someone who looks at plot development or conclusion, Acts ends in a sort of disappointing way. You don't find out what happens. It's almost like a chapter was dropped out or something that doesn't tell you how the trial came out. We do know that Paul was killed. We know that from, from other history. But Luke doesn't report it, and obviously he finishes the book while they're still waiting for these things to unfold, as if maybe he would hold on to the book, and if it happened in a month or two, he could add that ending. But but perhaps as time went on and the trial was not called for and perhaps Paul was freed, Luke thought, well, I'll send this on to Theophilus because it's as much as I can report for now. But despite that sense of abruptness or unfinished ending, Acts really is a finished work in the sense that it accomplished what God intended and what the Holy Spirit intended through Luke as we go back to the beginning and are reminded that Acts 1.8 is the theme of this book in which it was told that the witness of Christ would go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the world. That has happened. No question that has happened. So in that sense, what Acts said would be accomplished has been accomplished. Now, I see a great theme, and I just keep our, our thinking simple today with less time with our communion worship, but I remind you that the theme here at the ending of Acts is this, that while God's apostle was chained, the gospel of Jesus Christ goes forward absolutely unrestricted and free. The apostles chained, the gospel is not. The good news of transforming hope that came from the death and resurrection of Christ has been under siege in this whole book. You've seen every kind of opposition to the message that could possibly be offered to its human witnesses. They have been killed, As in the case of James or Stephen, they've been lied about, mocked, beaten, chased out of town, stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked, starving, every kind of hardship or persecution you can think of with people hounding their tail, literally going to the next town to report lies about the apostles so that the people in the next town wouldn't believe them. And yet with all that opposition, what we see is that the gospel keeps moving forward and leaping ahead. It's like those fires you're seeing on the news in California with the Santa Ana winds and and they just can't tell where they're going to go or how fast they're going to move and people get one hour's notice that their house is in danger. That's the way the gospel has been in the book of Acts. Racing from town to town and island to island. New churches, new witness being established. So despite the opposition, the gospel's been triumphant. Paul wrote Second Timothy from his imprisonment in Rome during this time, and he might have very well been stating a good theme for us of, to put upon or a, a banner to put upon Acts 28 when he wrote in second Timothy two: nine and said, "I am bound with a chain like a criminal, but the word of God. Is not bound. And that really is the final declaration of this book of Acts. I have three swift points for you this morning to see here. The first comes in verses 23 to 27 primarily, and it's a familiar emphasis, something we've heard before, as Paul calls to the Jewish leaders of Rome Synagogue, and he says to them in so many words that the hope of Old Testament Israel was fulfilled in Jesus. For those who have eyes of faith to see it. Now, this is consistent with his whole ministry. Remember, he always went to the synagogue first. He always started with his people. He had quit on that a few times, but here he is still at Rome, still doing it. He calls these synagogue leaders and wants to present the case for Christ to them. I think he had an ulterior motive, which was to find out whether they knew anything about his case and the charges against him. And they give evidence, you see, that they don't. They said we haven't heard anything bad about you. Evidently, the, the uh, folks in Jerusalem didn't even bother to send formal letters on ahead charging Paul. They just figured, you know, that he was out of their hair and the thing would take care of itself somehow. So Paul finds out that, that no uh, condemning evidence has been sent about him. And he then wants to use this opportunity to present his apologetic for Christ as the Messiah of Israel. And he says in verse 20, it is for the hope of Israel, God's fulfillment of what the Old Testament expected that I am wearing a chain. I'm not a traitor to my Jewish heritage or my nation of Israel. Paul's saying I'm a Bible scholar who has studied Moses and I've studied all the prophets and I've heard one resounding theme in all of them. They were looking for someone. And I know who it is. It is Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. And it says he spent a full day. They came and from morning till evening. I have no idea exactly how long that was, but quite a strong disputation, surely a question and answer time and a time of argumentation as they talked about the Scripture. And Paul actually won over some of the Jewish leaders' minds, it says, but many remained unconvinced. You see, it was always an enormous problem to Paul, and it's an unresolved problem. Paul must have thought often, why is it that my people Israel were singled out by God to be that special model of his grace and how he would work and so on, and and he did so much for them in the Old Testament, but they kept turning against him, and now it appears that they're forsaking him in droves, and the worst animosity we get towards Jesus, his son, our Savior, is, is from Israel. Well, Paul pulls out a passage here that's a much-quoted New Testament passage. It comes from Isaiah chapter 6, as you see it beginning in verse 26. The situation of that was when Isaiah, remember how Isaiah was called? He had that great vision in the temple of God's glory, and he bowed down before it, awed at the holiness of God when he heard, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And he was He had his calling as a prophet reaffirmed to him in an interesting way because the Spirit seemed to be saying to Isaiah, I'm calling you to go to my people with a message, but know this, they're basically not going to listen to you. Their eyes are blind, their ears are stopped up, they don't want to hear what you're going to say. That passage from Isaiah 6 is quoted a number of times. By Jesus, it actually appears on the lips of Jesus in all four Gospels. Jesus quoted that to the Pharisees and others who are uh, t- trying to explain to them, here's, here's why I'm not getting through to you people. Because you, you look, but you don't see. You, you hear, but you don't hear. You think, but you don't perceive anything. And it's your rebellion that has brought this deafness and this blindness. Your spiritual arrogance has caused you not to hear what God is saying. And so it was true what John 1 11 said that Jesus came to his own, but his own wouldn't receive him. And yet to as many as did receive him, he would give the power to become a child of God. That verse, too, could almost be a theme verse for Acts because it, too, hints at the rejection by the nation of Israel and the acceptance of God's uh, Savior by the Gentiles. This good news of the cross and resurrection of Jesus is like a cleaver... Dividing through the middle of history and dividing man and woman, boy and girl, either for God's salvation or against it. It sifts human beings. It sifts out between believer and non-believer. To one person, the message of Christ is greeted with rejoicing and hope. and, And people say, yes, I see that. Why, that's the way I always thought it must be, but I didn't know it before. And others look upon it and listen to it and push it away or curse at it or somehow vehemently reject it. People say the same same sun in the sky melts wax, but it hardens clay. And that's what the gospel does. It separates between people. Christ is a sign set for the downfall of some and the rising of others, and there's no way to explain that apart from the mystery of God's own electing grace. But Paul's here once more for a last time saying it. The hope of Old Testament Israel was fulfilled in Jesus for those with eyes to see Him. But then secondly, at the end of that discourse with these Jewish leaders, in verse 28, chapter 28, verse 28, Luke is writing here and says that Paul told them, and these are still Paul's words, therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. That's the second point. The Gentiles will listen. Not every Gentile, certainly not everyone, but tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions in the centuries that would unfold after this would listen To this wonderful good news of Christ. Now, that's been the major development of Acts, the opening up of the message to the Gentiles. Remember Cornelius back there who was was the first Gentile, and Peter was rather astonished that God's Spirit was on a Gentile. Peter said, how can that be? Peter, you would think you would have known that, but he didn't. He had to be convinced that God's Spirit could actually save a Gentile. And then you saw it unfolding with increasing. Uh, frequency as Acts went on. You know, we might think that we're closing this book, and here's God's key apostle who's dominated the second half of Acts, and you think, boy, Paul's really in the pit. He said, yes, he's, he's not in a dungeon. It's a house arrest. I guess his circumstances were reasonable, but he was arrested. He couldn't move about anywhere he wanted to go. But he has no freedom, so he can you know, a church planter, an itinerant who wants to go places and, and start churches where there are no churches and visit the other churches that he's plant. he can't go anywhere. You think his life's a failure. Well, that's not what we have here. What we have instead is a man whom God has resettled at the doorstep of Caesar's palace, literally able to interact with Caesar's select guard— and we know from other places, members of Caesar's own household, and he's speaking the gospel, teaching the gospel, in one of the greatest home Bible studies that ever functioned for two years as people come to him. And Paul is able to instruct from the city at the center of the empire the great truths of Christ. In one sense, instead of seeing that as a defeat, you say, what a great pulpit Paul has been given here at the end of his life. And notice the last two words I found in a number of commentators, and I had not thought about this before. It was a new insight to me to concentrate on the last two words of Acts, that he was teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ without all boldness and without hindrance. But he's had nothing but hindrance. Every year up to this point, everywhere he went, hindrance, hindrance, hindrance. People in the way, enemies, lies, difficulties, persecutions. Now, at Caesar's doorstep, the gospel's pouring out without hindrance. Glory to God at the way he's able to work in his wonderful providence. Guards and officials and all these people were hearing, and the very power center of the empire was getting the gospel. Besides that, Not only was it significant that he was there, but he was, and that he was teaching day to day, remember, he was writing. And we know some of the things that he wrote while he was in this imprisonment. Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, 2 Timothy, some of his great, powerful letters that particularly stress the grandeur of Christ. There's no greater emphasis in the whole New Testament than Colossians, two and three, and it's exaltation of Christ. Christ, the fullness of God dwelling in a human body. It's this great Christ that Paul now is preaching as he's here in captivity with a chain on his wrist. And he can talk about the heights and the depths of the condescension of God from heaven's glory to the bottomless pit of the suffering of the cross and the wonder of the resurrection. The Holy Spirit was not handcuffed in the pen of the Apostle Paul. The word went forth without hindrance. So I come third and conclusively to what I call the message of Christ as told in Acts 29. Would you look at Acts 29, please? You're all looking at your Bibles? Did somebody take that page out? Of course, you don't have Acts 29. That chapter's not there. It's the chapter that we sort of wish was there because it might give a nice, neat ending. I often argue my mother-in-law has a... I love my mother-in-law dearly. She has a very irritating habit of reading the ends of books. She always wants to know how it comes out, and then she goes back and reads the books. I could not do that. I want to see all the development that leads to the end. Well, there isn't the exact end that we are looking for here that Acts 29 might tell us Paul was, to- was on trial and these witnesses came and said this and this happened and then on such and such a day he was taken out and beheaded. We don't have it. But once again, I tell you, it's a finished book. Acts 1.8 said, You shall be my witnesses, Jesus speaking, You shall be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's happened. And it not only has happened, it's still happening. It happened beyond the removal of Paul from this earthly sphere. We could go and sometime it would be interesting to offer a class. The material is not real in-depth in every case, but it would be interesting. There's a few books out there that you can find about what happened to all the apostles and how they all died. One of them, we believe, got to India. Another, we think, got into Gaul, which is France. Another, or at least he, those he directly influenced, got to England, North Africa. It's amazing, all the places that the gospel went in the apostolic age, it kept on expanding and going. I had to look this up, but I knew that there was something called the Unfinished Symphony It's Franz Schubert's Symphony No. 8, written in 1822. How do you like that, Pat? I checked it out. Franz Schubert wrote two movements, but it was very clear that he intended the symphony to have four movements, and nobody's ever heard the other two movements, and so it's one of those. There are actually other symphonies that are called the Unfinished Symphony. Acts is an unfinished symphony. Because it looks for the movement of the bold declaration of Christ, not only in those other apostles that remained alive, but in every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ. I heard once, you know, it's the the thing nowadays to name churches unconventional names. Nobody uses First Baptist Church or Calvary Presbyterian. In fact, denominational names are out. They're supposedly non-productive. Sorry I have an argument with that, but but you call churches things like Cross Point or Mars Hill or something today. Well I passed a church once with its sign and I smiled and I, I rejoiced as I saw it. The name of the church was Acts twenty nine. And I said, Great. That's what it's about, folks. God's people were saying we now have the message of bold declaration of a living Savior, a powerful Savior, to carry forward. Paul's not here anymore, but we have his task. And it belongs to us to preach what he preached and live what he lived. And until the Lord Jesus Christ appears on earth, the book of Acts will not be completely closed out. Then it will be. Then when he is seen by every eye and some know him as only as judge, not welcome Savior, then will the book of Acts be closed. But until then, he gave us this little thing called his great commission. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel to every creature, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I would make this observation to you. It's been very clear in Acts that this Preaching of the gospel has not gone forward without sacrifice and suffering. Do you remember when Paul was converted on the Damascus Road and uh, the Christian man who was told, Ananias, right, who was told to go and and baptize him, uh, and he was reluctant to do it, the Holy Spirit said to that man, I will show Saul what he must suffer. He really suffered amazingly. Probably in some way a penance for his opposition to the church. And we say, well, I don't really want to suffer. I certainly don't want to be beheaded. I don't want to be stoned. I don't want to be jailed. I'm not sure that's the suffering that's going to be asked of us. But if we in Acts 29 are going to carry the gospel forward, we're going to have to sacrifice. We're going to have to ask ourselves if our affluency and our comfort and our good reputation among all the people of this world is the thing we can prize most or if we have to step away from some of those things and identify with these apostles. The Word of God has never been bound in 20 centuries. They're still trying, ladies and gentlemen. Your Congress, your president, all kinds of people are trying to bind the Word of God, they won't succeed. And the unfinished remaining task of Acts 29, the unfinished symphony of the gospel, beckons to you and to me. Our Father, I ask you that we would, in some way, be roused to see the urgency of this task that whatever opposition we may see today is in many ways only faint compared to what the gospel has had before. Thank you for this powerful, life-changing good news about Jesus, the hope of Israel. May we be its worthy recipients and servants. We ask for his sake. Amen.